0: I want to thank all of you for uh, making it to, to uh, Professor DiLorenzo's lecture. He, we're very, very pleased that he's a longtime friend of the Mises Institute, someone who, of course, personally knew Murray Rothbard, knew James Buchanan, knows all about the Public Choice School, and, of course, is a, a thoroughgoing and deep Austrian. But I think a lot of you probably know him better as, a, as an historian. And Tom is is just from that era where you could could be both. They didn't have this stay in your lane mentality among academia so much. So he's a tremendous scholar, uh, not only of Alexander Hamilton, but also of uh, Abe Lincoln, for whom he seems to have a a bit of distaste. (laughs) And he's here to uh, today talk about his great book, which came out a couple of years ago, about the problems with socialism. Please welcome Tom DiLorenzo. Thanks Jeff. Uh, this is the book that uh, the, the Mises Institute won't allow you to leave the building unless you purchase a copy of my book on the, <laughs> the, the problem with socialism And so I thought I put together this talk that I was given a few times on uh, 10 things millennials should use should know about uh, socialism and uh, because a couple of years ago there you know there began uh, taking polls of uh, so-called millennials I guess what, born after 1983 is how they used to define that. And, uh, and uh, something like some of the polls said uh, 50 to 60% preferred socialism over capitalism. And uh, it's probably the people you see rioting out in the streets in the last couple of months. You know, they're a big part of that 50 or 60%. And so, um, and so um, you know, we thought, my publisher and I, Regnery Publishing, thought, well, we should do something about this. And they, they asked me to write a, a book, a short book, uh, and it's almost pocket size. It's, they said, "Well, we'll make it small like this, so it'll fit in a na- in a knapsack, a student knapsack." And it's not a it's not a big tome like Mises' socialism. And so that was the purpose of that book. And so uh, so anyway, so I so I'm going to talk about uh, ten things. I probably I might not get to all ten things that you should know uh, about socialism. And the first one is uh, you know in Ludwig von Mises' famous book, Socialism. The last couple of chapters, he talks about something called destructionism. Okay, And let me uh, quote Mises himself in explaining what uh, he means by destructionism. He says this, Socialism is not in the least what it pretends to be. It is not the pioneer of a better and finer world, but the spoiler of what thousands of years of civilization have created. It does not build, it destroys, for destruction is the essence of it. It produces nothing. It only consumes what the social order based on private ownership and the means of production has created. Since a socialist order of society cannot exist unless it be as a fragment of socialism within an economic order resting otherwise on private property, each step leading towards socialism must exhaust itself in the destruction of what already exists. Now, the, and he has a section on the sort of methods of destructionism in his day. This was you know, the early 1920s. And he lists labor legislation like the minimum wage, maximum hour legislation, social security taxes, and, and the sort of the nationalization of old age insurance, labor unions, unemployment insurance, taxation in general, and inflation. And those are, those are some of the tools of destructionism, destruction, you know, that he thought were going to destroy or work at destroying the capitalist economy and, and what he called social cooperation. And uh, I forget who it was, I don't know if it was Jeff or somebody else, uh, the other night uh, mentioned that the original working title of uh, human action was social cooperation. And it's another word for the international division of labor. And that's what, uh, in fact, in, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels mock. The whole idea of uh, the international division of labor, and say they want to destroy it. That's that's always been the uh, the essence of destructionism. There. So that's that was uh, Mises' day in night in the early day for even for him the 1920s. That has changed quite a bit over the years. There's a new form of destructionism now. You may be familiar with something called the Frankfurt School. It's where political correctness comes from. It's where uh, so-called cultural Marxism comes from, and after after the uh, Marxists failed to uh, instigate uh, socialist uh, revolutions in Europe, uh, uh, you know, based on the old Marxian theory of an inherent conflict between the working class and the capitalist class, they decided that the work of the factory workers was not a big enough group of people to be on their side, to overthrow the existing institutions of society. They need more than just factory workers. Plus the factory workers just wanted better wages and working conditions. They didn't want to destroy society and run the factories themselves. They just wanted better pay. And so they invented a new theory, a group of uh, uh, Marxists who came to America from Germany, Italy, and and a few other places and, known as the Frankfurt School. And the new class conflict uh, became not the capitalist class and the working class, but uh, the oppressor class and the oppressed. And the oppressor class is essentially white heterosexual males, and the oppressed is everybody else. And so they, that's, that's where all these categories come from, women, minorities, the transgender, this and that. Everybody is categorized because they, their, their, their scheme or their, their strategy was that, well, that's a heck of a lot more people than just factory workers. That's just about everybody. And so they, they've been working for decades and decades in creating conflict between the oppressor class and the oppressed class. Uh, there's even a famous essay by Herbert uh, Marcuse, the, the Marxist, late Mar- uh, Marxist professor, on uh, called, I think it's called oppressive tolerance, where he makes the case that free speech should only be allowed to the oppressed class. The oppressor class does not deserve free speech. So when you see all these attacks on free speech in universities, the people who are instigating the attacks believe they're taking the moral high ground by abolishing free speech and academic freedom because they're, they think, that they say anyway, that they're attacking uh, speech of the oppressor class. And, and that's, that's a virtuous thing. And, so, and that's, so when you see today the attacks on Christianity, last weekend there were church burnings and the taking down the statues of the Virgin Mary and things like that. The institutions that they want to destroy now are the, the traditional family, the nuclear family, religion, especially Christianity, and, and in addition to capitalism. Itself. So when you see all these attacks, that's modern-day destructionism. And we've seen it on television here in the United States over the past couple of months, day in and day out, night in and night out, uh, with uh, the taking down of the statues. Not that I'm a big fan of statues. I I once told people that I don't think anybody should be on Mount Rushmore, let alone Abe Lincoln. But... uh, but uh, I don't want to say that anymore because I don't want to encourage the lunatics to go out there and dynamite the place and kill somebody uh, while they're doing it. So, that, so, so that's point number one about uh, socialism. As Mises said, destructionism was always a key element of it. And uh, the type of destructionism has evolved over the years. Point number two is that socialism will destroy your economic future. This is the really odd thing about um, the young people. Who, who are the, the Bernie Sanders followers? Who uh, who happily uh, marched behind like a Pied Piper? This picture, by the way, that's supposed to be Pinocchio, on the on the, on the cover of my book. We had a debate: should it be the Pied Piper or Pinocchio? The artist who works for the the publisher had a. Uh, I preferred Pied Piper. He had the Pied Piper and a whole bunch of college kids behind them. You know, you know, falling, you know, going, and they're headed toward a cliff. They're, they're walking toward a cliff. And I kind of like that one better. But they chose Pinocchio instead. Okay, It'll destroy your economic future. But we'll study a little bit of history. Of course, the Soviet Union... Uh, you know, when you think of socialism, you think of the Soviet Union uh, in the 20th century, and uh, even as late as uh, 1988, the uh, Nobel Prize winning Paul's, economist Paul Samuelson was predicting in his textbook that by the year 2000, the Soviet economy would be bigger than the U.S. economy. Uh, That's what you got by the distinguished MIT Nobel Prize winner, Paul Samuelson, whose book was the biggest-selling economics book for 40 years. And, uh, and of course, the CIA was saying at the time that the Soviet economy was about 65% of the U.S. economy. But then after the collapse, the worldwide collapse of socialism, our friend Yuri Maltsev, who was an economic advisor to Gorbachev, uh, apparently convinced our government that it was more like 5%. And uh, Yuri once told me that after he defected, he defected, he ends up in Dick Cheney's office. Dick Cheney was the defense secretary at the time. And they, Yuri, they brought Yuri in to debrief Dick Cheney on the Soviet economy. And uh, he say, he told me that Cheney said, uh, well, the CIA says it's 65%. And uh, Yuri said, no, 5%. And Cheney went back and said, well, surely it's probably somewhere between 5 and 65%. And, and Yuri said, no, no, 5 and, and Yuri told me that Cheney said uh, "sweet." That's what he said. <laughs> so, so it is possible that our friend Yuri is the guy who convinced our government the Cold War is over. That the Soviets can't finance uh, uh, any kind of military aggression. It's out of the question because of because of their economy. Okay. So everybody knows that. Um, you know, I have a, in my second chapter I have some. Our first chapter, I have some uh, brief uh, statistics on some countries around the world that have destroyed their their economies with socialism. Chile, in the 1970s, uh, nationalized uh, almost all their industries and adopted socialism. And uh, they they ruined their economy, as they always do. And then, as also as they always do, they tried to print their way out of it by printing money, and they created 746% inflation. After World War II, the British adopted uh, their version of socialism known as Fabian socialism. They kicked out Winston Churchill and brought in uh, uh, Clement Attlee and and adopted socialism. And by the 1970s, the whole world was talking about the British disease, meaning British industry. They nationalized all the the, uh, commanding heights of British industry. and, And they all operated like nationalized industries do with all the all the compassion of the IRS and all the efficiency of the Department of Motor Vehicles and uh, as they say and and so and that led to Margaret Thatcher's revolution in which she uh, privatized a lot of these industries and that's that's really the only reason why um, Britain today is reasonably prosperous compared to what they were it was the british disease back in those days argentina adopted its version of socialism in the 1950s and then tinkered with it with different varieties for decades, and they ended up trying to bail themselves out too uh, with printing money, and they created 12,000% inflation by the 1980s in Argentina. India after independence adopted Soviet-style central planning. There was a man named Mahalanobis who was their guru, their, their economic guru, and he claimed to be able to centrally plan the Indian economy with a single equation a single mathematical equation. He was was a brilliant mathematician, and and, uh, of course, it didn't work. India became synonymous with poverty for decades after that. No longer today, today India is much more prosperous because they've moved away from this for decades now, but but that's what they did after independence from the British Empire. Africa, after independence and colonialism uh, began uh, to disappear, uh, the theme was this, quote, only socialism will save Africa. So they tried that, and uh, the rest is history, too. Uh, I cite, there's a, an economist named George Ayite from Ghana. He's in America. He's been in a, in a, He's taught at American University for many years, but he's written some very good books. If any of you are interested in uh, a, a, a free market economist who critiques what, um, what the socialists in Africa did to his continent uh, I recommend George Ayete's book, books on on, on the subject. Uh, Sweden, um, we have I think is per, yeah, per is back there. So, so if you want to know anything about Sweden, just ask Per. He'll 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 tell you. Well, Sweden was one of the most prosperous countries in the world in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, you know, had these great entrepreneurs that created Volvo and, and, uh, and all sorts of uh, you know, electronic industries in, in the early days. And for a while, it had the, the most rapid uh, growth in GDP of any country in the world. And then they adopted their version of socialism you know, beginning in the 1950s. And uh, according to the, the Swedish Academy of Economics, I think that's the name of it. i have to look it up in my book, the exact name. They claimed that there was no no net new job creation in Sweden from 1950 to 2005. 55 years of uh, no, on net, no new job creation as a result. And I ran across one article that said, uh, but, you know, they, they did what all other countries do who destroy their economies with socialism and uh, try to print themselves, print money to bail themselves out, bail the government out anyway, and they created uh, 500% interest rates by the 1980s, as far as that goes. And so, you know, you know that's one of the things you need to learn about. Uh, uh, most students, you know, the, the millennials, uh, you know, they don't know, know anything about this, so it seems to me. So that's point number two, socialism will destroy your economic future. Point number three is you cannot fix socialism. Um, I'll tell you a little anecdote, uh, I was teaching at a, the university I was teaching it at, at during the, the collapse, the worldwide collapse of socialism in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, one day I, I left work and I was out in the, in the parking lot and I ran across one of the two Marxists in the economics department and he uh, was a very uh, uh, sort of nasty person, you know, I hated him, he was, he was always insulting. And he wasn't even uh, interested in an honest debater. He was just insulting and in name calling and stuff like that. So I ran into him and I, his name is John. I said, John, what are you going to do now? Bricklayer, carpenter you know socialism, and he said, "Oh no, no, this is all good for us. You know, we're no longer associated with these monsters like Stalin and Ceausescu and all, all these, these tyrants uh, there. So now, now we can fix socialism once 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 and for all." And that, that was his attitude. And so and so they, they never gave up. But of course, if you're, you're here at Mises University this week, you know that uh, you know socialism doesn't have the market feedback mechanism that competition in the marketplace does. Uh, you know that uh, without, without a, a price system, trying to have an economy without a, a price system de- uh, determined by prop- private property and, and prices determined by supply and demand, uh, by reality, in other words, it's kind of like trying to find your way through New York City after they take away all the street signs. Uh, and that's, that's what it's like to try to have an economy without the signals of, of prices. Okay, and so you cannot fix a reform socialism any more than you can, uh, uh, the, the analogy I used to give, since we're in Alabama, you might've noticed on the, the road from down from, uh, from the airport, there are all these gigantic vines that creep up over the tall pine trees and, and even pull them down to the ground and crack them in half some, sometimes. It's called kudzu, it's this vine called kudzu. And you cannot reform kudzu. You can't get a pair of scissors out and clip them around and, and you know, it keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. You have to pull it out by the roots and then burn the roots. And so and so you so you can't reform kudzu any more than you can reform socialism or you can't reform socialism any more than you can reform kudzu is 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 the way I, I would I would put it uh you know people around the world have tried and tried and tried they've tried fa- hundreds of different uh, types of socialism of all kinds and uh and uh, you should be a little suspicious that no matter what variety or what they call it, it doesn't work. And Not only does it not work, but it's very destructive of everything. And so that's another thing about, about socialism. Uh, point number four, democratic socialism can be just as disastrous as any kind. There's one little book that everyone in the room should read if you haven't already. It's The Law by Friedrich Bastiat. It's online for free or you can buy it for five bucks from the Mises Institute, the benefit of buying it for the five bucks is I wrote the introduction to it, so that's so it's worth at least five bucks. Okay, okay. Um, so, but anyway, uh, democratic socialism. Well, Argentina, Venezuela, and Brazil have all destroyed their economies with with democratic socialism. And in the law, uh, this is you know published in uh, eighteen fifty by Friedrich Bastiat, The Law. There's one little passage in there where he's criticizing socialism. And he says, of course, it doesn't really matter whether you have socialism with a dictator or socialism with a democracy. If, if you have, if you vote in one central plan to be imposed by coercive force of government on the whole population, what does it matter if, if it's voted into place or a dictator puts it into place? You're still gonna have uh, socialist central planning. For example, if if we get the Green New Deal, what does it matter that it's imposed on us by the coercive powers of the American democracy or the coercive powers of a dictator? We're still going to have, you know, we, you know, the, they want to abolish the automobile, abolish airplanes, uh, and they abolish windows and in buildings and all these these things, the so-called Green New Deal, and so it doesn't really matter. It can be just as uh, as disastrous as. Uh, as anything, uh, anything else. Okay, so, democratic socialism uh, can be just just as bad, and, and we have plenty of evidence of that. Um, let's see. Yeah, you know, speaking of that, I have a little little graphic here when Bernie Sanders Bernie Sanders, he's kinda of like the wizard of Oz now, isn't he? If you Joe Biden is making speeches out there on economics in the last couple of days, and he's saying everything that the the, the Sanderites are, are in in favor of. So I, I suspect Bernie's been writing the speeches. He's no longer the front man, but all the crazy things that they're talking about. But when Bernie was running, and uh, and that's that's how the millennials really cut on to socialism when, you know, just, Ernie, in uh, an exam question, I taught a course, by the way, on called Capitalism and Its Critics, and one of the exam questions I asked them at the end, the final exam question, was um, uh, sort of uh, well, as I said, many of your peers, the students, think that their economic future will be better off if uh, the economy is placed in the hands of a 77-year-old lifelong communist. You know, what do you think of that, <laughs> It was, was the question. And so, but, but anyway, you know, Bernie was touting democratic socialism. And I remember seeing him on, uh, I think it was the Tonight Show, and, and Larry David was opposite him, because Larry David, the actor, played Bernie Sanders on, I mean, Saturday Night Live, I think it was. And so they had Bernie and, and Larry David, sorry. So, uh, but Larry David was kind of skeptical of this democratic socialism. And he asked him, so you're, you're social, socialism is a bad thing you know, Larry David knew about Russia and what happened in Russia and you know, the Soviet Union. But but you think democratic place is better. And 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 Bernie says, Oh, yes, yeah, huge difference. And then Larry Sanders made a big deal of huge. He like repeated the word huge several times and waved his arms around like that. And so so Bernie is, you know, he's pointing to Denmark, Finland, the Scandinavian countries, democratic socialism as his model. And uh, but what he's really thinking of, he's, he's thinking of, say, Sweden in 1950, or the Scandinavian countries when they started experimenting with uh, with socialism. But even Sweden, you know, like I say, you can ask Pear, they've taken a big step or two back for, from this in the last couple of decades. And so Bernie's not talking about today's Sweden. Now, some of you might be familiar with something called the Index of Economic Freedom. There's, there's something published by uh, the Heritage Foundation, the Wall Street Journal has been involved in this, the Fraser Institute in Canada. Walter Bloch was one of the founding fathers of this whole episode, whole thing, the index of economic freedom. I, I, I was at a, the, one of the first conferences to work this up in 1990 with Walter and Milton Friedman and, and, uh, and uh, Charles Murray and a bunch of other e- economists to work up the whole idea of an index of economic freedom. And, and there are, it's not perfect, of course, but here's the latest, some of the latest statistics. They, they work up an index based on how, you know, how much free trade, how, you know, how, how oppressive or, or not so oppressive taxes are, how oppressive or not so oppressive regulation is, and, and so forth. And I think of it as sort of a scale of you know, socialism on, on the left side with a zero, and capitalism on the right side, free market capitalism, you get 100. And so every country in the world is given a score on, on the index of economic freedom. And on this issue of you know, democratic socialism, Denmark, uh, in the latest index, had a the, the score they're given is 78.3, which is higher than the United States. Finland, 75.7. Sweden, 74.9. So they're all in the same ballpark. So when you hear people like Bernie Sanders saying, we should be more like Denmark or Sweden, well, if we, if we were more like Denmark, it would be more capitalistic, <laughs> according to this anyway. They have a better ranking today than the. Uh, as far as that goes, and a lot goes into this, you know, you might have business taxes that are lower in in, uh, in one country, but uh, income taxes are higher. And so it's kind of complicated. But the point I'm making here is that uh, when, when you hear people say these things, they're talking about the Scandinavia of 30 and 40 years ago. They're not talking about today. They learned, that we, some of them anyway, learned their lesson and by, by, from this. So don't fall for that, is what what I'm saying, okay. Uh, The next point is uh, socialism does not produce equality. That's always been, um, you know, the point, and and of course, you know, the, the definition of socialism started out as government ownership of the means of production, or government ownership and control of the means of production. And so, the, so at the beginning, it meant basically nationalization of industry by the government. But in, in the road to serfdom, Hayek, uh, the 1976 edition, Hayek made the argument that uh, the definition has been expanded because a lot of the early socialist countries gave up on the whole idea of running the factories because they, they realized, you know, what the heck do we know about running factories? And they, and they, they produce mass poverty and starvation. And so uh, they, they switched it to be, to that, you know, some nationalization, but, but also the institutions of income redistribution through the welfare state and the progressive income tax. You know, the, the second plank of the Communist Manifesto says a, a, a heavy progressive income tax. The first plank is abolition of private property. Second plank is a heavy progressive income income tax. And so, it's, uh, so, so Hayek said, the goal has always been so, uh, coerced equality, okay? But the, the, uh, the method has changed somewhat. Yes, it's also nationalization as much as they can get away with, but also primarily the institutions of the welfare state and the progressive income tax, okay? And uh, my old professor and, and colleague for a while, James Buchanan, uh, once said, if you understand public choice economics, you cannot be a socialist. Okay, in other words, if you understand how politics works, you cannot be a socialist. And I would combine that with another slogan that Hayek is known for when he said, uh, under socialism, the only power worth having is political power. And so in all the socialist countries of the world, it's the politically connected who do very well, and they're not equal to you, I guarantee you that. They're not at all equal. Uh, in Venezuela, when uh, uh, you know the daughter of the former dictator, Chavez, uh, uh, was revealed in the, in the Wall Street Journal to have a net worth of $4 billion. And she was a young woman in her 30s, and I don't believe she was one of the founders of Microsoft or Apple Computer or anything like that, to have a net worth of $4 billion with a B. They also said the former finance minister of Venezuela in Chavez's time uh, left the country, went to Europe somewhere, maybe probably Switzerland would be my guess, and the Wall Street Journal says his net worth is about $11 billion. And so, you know, what did he do to, to produce uh, uh, goods and services that earned him 11 billion dollars? Nothing. He stole the money. And so, uh, and and, and, and I, I did a little research on Venezuela a few years ago when, you know, when they first started uh, their their economy, first started becoming totally destroyed with socialism, and you know, a lot of articles on the web about how. All the cronies—they still have their country clubs, and they still eat well. And uh, and you can see pictures alongside of that, of the ordinary people who used to have good-paying jobs in the oil industry, for example, rooting through garbage looking for something to eat for dinner, and uh, and so and that's always been the case with socialism. Uh, you know, it's you know Bernie Sanders owns three houses. You know, I don't own three. How many of you own three houses? And uh, so it's a. Uh, so that's it's a myth that socialism produces e- equality. Uh, wasn't it? Who was it? George Orwell that said uh, 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 all people are created equal, but some are more equal than others. Uh, or was, I can't remember if that was in Animal Farm or one of the other uh, you know, uh, books. Okay. Another point is um, I've always been sort of amused or maybe disgusted, uh, you know, after a long academic career, that the socialists on campus always strut around pretending to take the moral high ground. Especially where I worked, I worked at a Catholic institution so you had these hardened communists with priest callers walking around everywhere pretending to take the moral high ground when the ideology that they uh, espouse is associated with the worst crimes in human history. You know, the worst crimes in human history. Take a look at the Black Book of Communism as just one. There's by uh, authored by seven French scholars. Uh, There's also a book called Democide uh, by a uh, a sociologist named Rudy Rummel from the retired from the University of Hawaii, who uh, takes what Democide was was governments who murdered their own citizens for being dissenters. Not war, not, not governments who invaded another country and how many people died in World War II or anything like that. It was murder of your own citizens because they, they refused to, to bu- uh, you know, buckle under and knuckle under to your, your, your dictates and your commands, your socialist commands. And just this one book, The Black Book of Communism, and I've seen much higher estimates of this. Uh, how many people did the Russians kill? 20 million. China, 60 million. Vietnam, 1 million, North Korea, 2 million, Cambodia, 2 million, Eastern Europe, 1 million, Africa, 1.7 million, and Latin America, 150,000. And so these are not war-related deaths, these millions of people. That's the 20th century. That's what socialism did. That's what I mean when I say it kind of sickens me to have these academics uh, strutting around, always taking the moral high ground when they're associated with this ideology. Now, in in his famous book, The Road to Serfdom, uh, probably the most famous chapter in Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, is one called uh, uh, The Worst Rise to the Top. And what he's talking about, he says, under any kind of collectivist system, whether you call it socialism or anything else, typically what happens, the socialists will impose central planning, price controls, all the usual things that will that will cause economic catastrophe. And so they have a choice, uh, back off and admit you were wrong or double down. And they always double down, more more coercion, more planning, more controls and so forth. And of course that takes more coercion, more more orders, more dictates, more police, more guns, you know, more jails uh, to, to do that. And so uh, Hayek argues that in a system like that, it evolves to the extent where the worst kind of people will rise to the top in a political system like that—the people with the fewest qualms about brutalizing their fellow man. And there might be a scale, kind of like my capitalism-socialism scale. Okay, you might you might think of it as a tyrannometer. You know, the meter, different measures of tyranny. You know, on left and right. But uh, but that's that's why he said the worst rise to the top. And so again, uh, you're not going to reform this. Socialism depends on this. It depends on, on the use of coercion and it doesn't work economically for all the reasons you're learning this week. And so they will always be confronted with a choice. Now s- some countries have backed off. England did away with Fabian socialism. Sweden moved away from uh, their version of 1950s era, 1960s era socialism somewhat. They still have a huge welfare state but they're like we do in the United States, but uh, but some people learn their lesson, but uh, but not everybody. Okay, so that's, uh, that's that's that point. Also, under equality, you know, if, if you if the government wants to pursue equality, it can only do so by treating people unequally. You know, and that's another point that Hayek makes. Actually, you know, if you, what does it mean to pursue equality, material equality? It means you have to take money out of the pockets of one group of people and give it to another group of people to try to make it equal. Well then, so you have to, by definition, you have to treat people unequally in the pursuit of your goal of equality. And so it's just a a silly contradiction that that, uh, under socialism, you can do that. Uh, Hayek says that in his chapter on the rule of law, he argues that uh, uh, collectivism in general is, inherently incompatible with the rule of law, which means everyone treated equal under the law, because inevitably, inevitably leads to this big bundle of policies that treats different groups unequally. That's that's in, in pursuit of equality. Okay. <clears throat> Next point. Fascism is a form of socialism. Okay. Don't get confused by Antifa, in other words. <laughs> you, know, you know, and I have a couple of quotes on this from The book Socialism, I I just wrote these down this morning. I didn't have a printer in my room. I just wrote these down. This is from uh, Misi's book Socialism. Nobody could surpass Mussolini in Marxian zeal. He's talking about uh, the early days of Benito Mussolini in Italy. And then another quote, that's on page 574 of the book Socialism. Another quote is, the slogan into which the Nazis condensed their economic philosophy which is the common ranks above private profit, is likewise the idea underlying the American New Deal and the Soviet management of affairs. So that's, so that's what uh, von, von Mises was saying. And so it's all the same, same gang, the New Deal, Mussolini, Hitler, and in terms of economics anyway, he's not talking about the Holocaust and all these, these things. Okay, so fascism is, is a form of socialism, and it always was. Hayek points out, as does Mises, that all of these so-called fascists all started out as, as Marxists, like M- Mussolini did. He was, you know, hardcore Marxist. And uh, so let me read you a, a couple of things from the horse's mouth. Uh, Mussolini himself, he wrote a book. Uh, he, had a, he was a Ph.D. in, I think, political philosophy. He wrote a, wrote a book called... Uh, fascism, doctrine, and institutions, he said this, the fascist conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with the state. It is opposed to classical liberalism. Classical liberalism, the free market, libertarianism, John Locke, James Madison, all all the ideas the judge talks about in constitutionalism and and, (laughs) they, they knew who the enemy was. The enemy is a free society, classical liberal, the ideas of a free society, classical liberalism. He said, because classical liberalism denied the state in the name of individual, and you can't do that. The state comes first. And so that's that's what Mises was talking about when he said, it's, you know, collectivism is collectivism, whether you, no matter what you, what you call it. And so, and of course the, uh, the Nazis, uh, national socialism, the main difference between the uh, uh, the Nazis and the Soviets where the the Soviets called themselves international socialists, and the Nazis called themselves nationalist socialists. You know nationalism, and so that was that was the key difference. But they were all socialists. I mean, it's right in there in in the word. And uh, and I don't distinguish. I agree with Mises. One of his writings, he says communism, socialism, same thing. Uh, when I went on, I did sixty five radio interviews after this book came out. My publisher. Had me running all over, uh, you know, running ragged, uh, doing radio interviews, all in about a month' uh, time. And uh, and I would always be asked, "Well, yeah, communism was bad, but it's not the same thing as socialism." Well, I would usually tell them, "Well, remind them that the name of the Soviet Union, the country, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It wasn't called the Union of Soviet Communist Republics. The, they were they call themselves socialists because communism was this." utopian ideal that would be achieved in 500 years but in the meantime we're all socialists that that was the whole basis of the soviet union that's what it was a union of a union of socialist countries okay so there's so i don't, and Mises said that <clears throat> that there's no difference in this uh, i don't distinguish between between it either it's all the same gang so fascism uh, is really a form of uh, socialism. Hayek, Hayek said in a Serfdom, they said, all of the leading men of German and Italian fascism began as socialists and ended as fascists or, or Nazis. So it's just a matter of uh, degree. Uh, the next point uh, I'll make is um, the progressive income tax. You know, the... the uh, Second plank of the Communist Manifesto. Economists all know that uh, you know one of the things about the income tax it penalizes work. It's a tax on work, uh, nothing, and, and so it can deter the work effort, and it really does fuel the what the Catholic Church would say is the deadly sin of envy. You know the the, the seven deadly sins. Envy is uh, one of the worst in in my book because that's that's really uh, what has been behind uh, the Soviet Union and. You know, communism everywhere is, is envy and resentment of, uh, of other people I used to have in my office door uh, a, a short quote L- look up on the web Henry Hazlitt socialism in one minute and, uh, and he says uh, it's, it's basically you know you can explain socialism by a sort of envy and hatred of the man who is better than you and that's it. And that's not an exact quote but it's the essence of uh, what uh, the great Henry Hazlitt said was the essence of, of, uh, of socialism Okay, now the progressive income tax, yeah, it, it sort of uh, stokes the fires of, of envy, and I also quote uh, Frank Chodorov. There's a great book downstairs. I think he's still for sale downstairs. It might be online also on Mises.org. Uh, the income tax, root of all evil. I, I like that title. It's kind of, it's kind of title I would uh, I would uh, pick. And, uh, this is my latest Lincoln book, by the way. I wanted to call it That Stinking Lincoln, but they they chose. Uh, <laughs> They chose the, the problem with Lincoln, and, and anyway, but uh, and maybe that'll work out better. But on the income tax, let me get the right page here. Shot her off. I can find him. This might take about 15 minutes. Now here we go. Now, so here we said, here's one statement he made about uh, the income tax. Let's see. Here's what, when we thought of the income tax in 1913 in the United States, and this goes for any country that has an income tax, Chodorov said, here's what the state is saying to you. He's saying, quote, your earnings are not exclusive, exclusively your own. We have a claim on them, and our claim precedes yours. We, the state, we will allow you to keep some of it because we recognize your need, but not your right. But whatever we grant you for yourself is for us to decide. Yeah, that's, that's the meaning of the adoption of an income tax. It's basically the nationalization of your income. And, uh, and what is the difference between that and slavery, by the way? You know what do, you, what do you call a system where people are forced to work for the benefit of others, for four or five months out of the year. What's you know, the National Taxpayers Union uh, computes uh, Tax Freedom Day every year, and it's the end of April. They, they just divide total tax revenues taken in by the government, divided by national income, and they usually come up with April 27th or something like that, okay? And uh, I, I, used to, I used to ask my students that, well what would you call a system where one person is forced with threats of violence and imprisonment to work for the benefit of other people. It takes about two seconds for somebody to say slavery. And then, uh, and then I asked them, well, what's, how's that different from the welfare state? <laughs> and uh, and they, they get very uncomfortable because they've been taught their whole lives that the welfare state is a good and virtuous thing. They never thought of it. I got that from Walter Williams. That's one of his uh, techniques and uh, speech-making uh, techniques. Another thing the, uh, the income tax does, is to create a tremendous centralization of power. Okay. Let's see if I can get Chodder off again. Let's see. Well, anyway, I'll I'll skip over that. I don't want want to give you another long quote. Um, You know, the. Uh, one way to look at it is, you know, during the Civil War, since I've written about Lincoln and all that, there was uh, one of the things I've written about over the years is there was a, a huge uh, desertion crisis uh, on, on the Lincoln's army. You could read stories of how on the eve of a big battle, there would be 80,000 soldiers in camp ready for, you know, the Battle of Manassas or something like that. And then the sun would come up and there'd be 20,000. <laughs> Where everybody they disappear into the woods, and, and this happened over and over again, and the U.S. government did not have the revenue with which to 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 uh, you know pay people to run down the deserters. But they do today. You know, once they adopted the income tax, you're not going to evade the conscription law. They'll find you anywhere, and they'll they'll, they'll root you out because they can. They got all the money in the world, and of course the Fed came in at the same time as the conscription law, and so that that's not going to happen. Okay. And so that's the progressive income tax. I guess the last thing I'll mention, uh, I want to leave time for a few questions or comments about any of this, As one of the things I've written about over the years is uh, when, when the socialism collapsed in the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, one of the things we learned is that the socialist countries of the world were by far the most polluted. Uh, the, the 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 worst environmental nightmares in the in the world were in the, we're in the socialist countries. There are even books published with titles like "Ecoside" in the USSR, and and I wrote several articles about this. There were stories. All of a sudden, people could go into these closed societies and, and look around and see see what things are like. Scientists, journalists, and there were stories like uh, a man in Poland would pull up his car alongside a river for to have a picnic and used the river water to wash his car. He had to eat lunch and go back, and the paint had come off his car because of all the chemicals that were in the river. There were signs on steamboats in the Volga River in Russia that said, do not throw cigarettes overboard. The river may catch on fire uh, because there's so many. Uh, The the soil in former Czechoslovakia was toxic down to a foot deep from decades of overuse of chemical fertilizers uh, and and things like that. uh, I had a friend who uh, who was from Zagreb in former Yugoslavia who came to America and he worked as a lawyer for the government and he told me he lived on the 30th floor of a high-rise that had no elevator and I asked him if he was a, a mountain climber or a you know physical fitness fanatic or something like that he said no the pollution was so bad that uh, you can't open your windows unless you're at least on the 30th floor and I didn't want to live you know without my being able to open my windows and so and then in, and in Poland there were stories of of uh, fire trucks going through the streets with water cannons to, to knock the lead and zinc and cadmium dust off uh, out of the air. You know, that was their version of pollution control, I guess, uh, back in the, under communism. And so it just, you know, we've had our problems here in this country, but nothing like happened there because everything was one big commons, you know, no private property. And with private property comes responsibility. You're responsible for how you use your property and so to the extent that governments uh, enforce this enforce uh, the harm that you impose on other people in the use of your property uh, pollution can be reasonably reasonably controlled but if you have a system where everything's a commons you don't have that and the russians had a great sounding constitution said many wonderful things about the environment but then they destroyed their environment and anyway they they almost <clears throat> there was so much overfishing that the sturgeon population was almost destroyed, they almost ran out of caviar. you know you know thank God the communism ended so we could save the caviar but but they, they almost they almost ran out of sturgeon who produced the caviar and so so I would uh, that's the last point, and that's true of some of the democratic countries too uh, uh, Brazil the, the beach at Rio de Janeiro is one of the most polluted waterways in the planet, for example. Uh, Mexico, you know, we had this awful oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, not too far from here, several years ago, an oil platform blew up, people died. Uh, there was an oil slick for a while in the in the Gulf and in the, in the American uh, environmental, the watermelons, what I call them, they uh, green on the outside, red on the inside, went nuts over this. And uh, but Mexico does this all the time. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, British Petroleum set aside 20 billion dollars to compensate the victims and and to suffer lawsuits and, and everything of this Mexico does the same thing and they just thumb their nose at the world they just say you know go go you know where we're not going to pay anything and they don't and uh, and they have you know and it's you know democratic socialism isn't it basically they have a nationalized oil industry and so uh, so this is not just the soviet union and the communist countries it's it's a lot of these other countries as well and so maybe I'll stop it there. Those are some of the things that uh, everyone should know about and follow up on and study and learn more about. And uh, I think we have a few minutes if, if you wanted to, if you have a question just shout it out. You know, we don't want, we don't want to have to pass a microphone around and spread the plague uh, to anybody if you don't want to. But if you're also convinced of everything, uh, yes sir. Uh, what's your response when in an argument someone says, "Well, that wasn't real socialism?" <laughs> Well, well, it depends on what that is. You know, we we know what socialism is: government ownership of the means of production, and then you have uh, Hayek's uh, sort of footnote that it also includes uh, the in, uh, institutions of the welfare state and a progressive income tax. So you can identify what, what socialism is. They always say that, and uh, and they always will say that. And uh, but it's it's a big cop out, isn't it? It's because we've tried it, hundreds of different types of socialism, and they've all had the uniform result. Of economic destruction, and you, you need to rely on economic theory too. That's why you're here this week. You know what the, what works and what doesn't work in terms of economics. And so, uh, if it's a if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a duck. You know, and that's that's basically what you're learning this week when you learn about the importance of the price system, socialist calculation, and so so forth. How to identify a duck when you see it. You know, and, and so that's that's what you need to rely on, I think. Yes, sir. So I don't know if I'm romanticizing the past, bit, but since you see, you know, your fair of socialists passing the New York system, does it seem like socialists are getting more mediocre, less ambitious, at the point? I think <laughs> in the old days, we kind of had, like, radical union bosses who expected that when the revolution came, they would be, you know, in charge, party bosses controlling these networks. But then nowadays, we just have people who just want jobs in DMD or to be social workers and replacing all the cops. Like, they set their they're, they're sights much lower of the original yeah, we don't have as many Lenins as we used to, I guess, is what you're saying. Uh, people like that. Uh, although that guy who's the head of the Democratic National Committee is a spitting image of Vladimir Lenin, isn't he? I forget what his name is, but he, he looks just like him. It, 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 it creeped me out when I saw him. This guy's in charge of the Democratic Party. It like Vladimir Lenin, come back to life. You know, look like they trotted out his corpse and, and stood in front of a camera, you know, you know. And, uh, and uh, but but yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, you got you got the dopey college kids who are out there setting fires and and, uh, and, and raising hell. Uh, your classmates who have been indoctrinated in this since uh, since grade school, uh, apparently. But they're, but like you said, maybe their highest aspiration is to be a bureaucrat at the Department of Motor Vehicles and get a government job for life, where so they don't have to work and get paid every day. And so, uh, but you do have, uh, you know, the, the Bernie brigade and you do have people like uh, Pelosi and you know, the people who run and Chuck Schumer. Um, I had a student once that I brought to Mises University. He was a straight A student. He, he spent six years in the Marine Corps before he went to college and he was very smart. And he had that Marine Corps discipline and high intelligence. And uh, our friend, the late Ralph Rako, who used to teach at Mises, you know, the great historian, um, yeah, Asked this, this student of mine, let's say his name was Jim. I don't want anybody to be able to guess who it was. He said, "Jim, could you pick out Senator Schumer in a crowd? Because he was a sniper in the Marine Corps, and so he was a sniper instructor. And so he was. Anyway, I just thought I'd end with kind of kind of a, a silly, a silly joke like that. But uh, but yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, we don't have. Thank God, we don't have quite as many Lenins but you do. But you do have Schumer's and Pelosi's and. Uh, and the in a, the young woman from Brooklyn who got fourteen thousand votes and became a congressperson. What's her name? AOC. You, you, know, you have you have people like that. But we'll see if they succeed. You know, whoever created the Green New Deal is a, is a Lenin. You know, that's an atrocious. Uh, the the Soviets were never that so so ambitious, in uh, in, in, in central planning is that. You know, they were much more piecemeal than the, the Soviets were. Never so idiotic as saying, "Hey, let's abolish all the cars and airplanes." You know, let's let's do that. You know, you know that's just plain uh, stupid. You know, but uh, but we may have that. We have that. I told uh, my old friend Dom Armentano, we had a little debate over the impact of Bernie Sanders and what he's up to a while back, and and I and uh, I told Dom that I think. He's probably sick of being a senator and would like the job, say, of EPA director, to be the guy to enforce the Green New Deal on us. If uh, if Joe Biden wins the election, and so uh, so we, so, we, so we might have another another Lenin come along sometime, but uh, but hopefully not. I think my time is just about up, and uh, and so thank you for your attention.